Welcome to the Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing Series. I'm Tom Gilligan, Director of the Hoover Institution. For more than a century, our mission has been dedicated to generating policy ideas that promote economic prosperity, national security, and democratic governance. A hallmark of the institution is the caliber of our fellowship. Our renowned scholars have both academic and practical experience. Their work is rigorous, independent, and grounded in history, data, and logic. The dissemination of their work has led to significant impacts on important public policy initiatives here and around the world. These briefings are just one of the ways that we hope to inform the discussion on the different challenges before us. Thank you for joining us today. As a reminder, we'll be taking audience questions and encourage you to submit yours using the Q&A button located at the bottom of your screen. Today's discussion is with cybersecurity scholars Jacqueline Snyder and Herb Lynn as in, entitled Cyber Power and Peril in the Post-COVID World. Jackie is a fellow at the Hoover Institution and a non-resident fellow at the Navy Naval War College's Cyber and Innovation Policy Institute and a senior policy advisor to the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. Before beginning her academic career, she spent six years as an Air Force officer in South Korea and Japan and is currently a reservist assigned to U.S. Cyber Command. In 2018, she was included, included in CyberScoop's lead list of influential cyber experts. Herb is the Hank J. Holland Fellow in Cyber Policy and Security at Hoover. He is a Chief Scientist Emeritus for the Computer Science and Telecommunications Board and the National Research Council of National Academies, where he served from 1990 through 2014 as a study director of major projects on public policy and information technology. He also served as a professional staff member and staff scientist for the House Armed Services Committee. Jackie and Herb, I'm so delighted to have you with us today. Thanks for joining us. Thank Great you. Let's, uh, let's start with some basics and just de define some things. Cyber is one of those issues that's probably foreign to most of us, including myself. So let's start with the basics. Um, give me some illustrations of uh, the kind of attacks or the way you think about attacks or threats in the cyber environment. Why don't we start with uh, her? Well, okay, so uh, when you talk about cyberspace, uh, that's really everywhere that you can use information to do something more efficiently or more effectively, or to do something that's entirely new. Uh, and since information is relevant to almost everything that we do today, uh, there's lots of places where you can screw around with that information. Uh, the cyber attacks that we talk about, loosely speaking, uh, can compromise that kind of information in three ways. Uh, the first is the, the confidentiality of it. The bad guy can get information that he shouldn't have. So that's like stealing your credit card numbers or stealing R&D information or from a company or, or, or something like that. Uh, integrity is when the bad guy can change information uh, that shouldn't be changed or forge it. So, for example, you corrupt a database. Uh, uh, and, and you, you change the database somehow so that you can't, so that it's no longer reliable, uh, that's what enables ransomware, so that the, the guys who, who have corrupted that database can now sell you back the, uh, the uncorrupted database that you so desperately need. Uh, there's uh, also uh, changing the computer program that runs your car so that your car can run away from you on the, on the highway and you no longer have control. Or they can steal your passwords and, and, and uh, usernames and so on and pretend to be you, so that those are, uh, those are bad things that you can do with uh, compromising integrity. The last thing is availability. We often talk about availability uh, as uh, the bad guy can keep you from getting information uh, or, or, or computer services that you want. So, for example, you can't get your you get too much junk mail in your uh, 
in your email, so you can't figure out which is useful, you can't get into the website or something like that. So those are, so that's what the professionals tend to talk about when they talk about the cyber attacks. Jackie? Yeah, and you know, I think a lot of times we hear the word cyber attack, but the spectrum of cyber activity is actually much more varied. Um, so the vast majority of what we see on a day-to-day -day basis is what we would consider and call cyber network exploitation or really cyber intelligence. And it's where you are using cyber operations in order to garner information. So you're not stealing, you're not taking data and making it so that somebody else can't access it. You're not manipulating it. You're just either stealing it or looking at it. So a lot of the um, things that we call cyber attacks, including like the OPM breach, for example, that would actually be more likely to be cyber intelligence where you're just looking at the information. But if you move up the spectrum, you move to what would be considered more of cyber attack. And cyber attack is when that data, not only have you have access to that data, but you're either destroying the data, manipulating the data, or you're not allowing somebody to access their own data. Now, all of these cyber attacks are somewhat different to what we would call cyber-enabled information operations. Mm -hmm. And that's when you use digital platforms and cyber means to propagate some sort of campaign about an issue, some sort of information campaign. So the 2016 um, Russian use of social media to try and, and create sentiment, that would be an example of a cyber-enabled information operation. The hacking of the DNC is an example of cyber intelligence that they then weaponized and used as a cyber information operation. Got it. You know, Jackie, we're all using uh, virtual platforms and we're online much more than we were before during this pandemic. Um, are attacks growing because of our exposure to these virtual and uh, cyber networks more? And if so, what kind of threats should we be most concerned about? We're definitely seeing an increase in cyber attack. And the vast majority of this increase in cyber attacks is coming from opportunistic criminals. So as we've migrated, not only kind of the, the fun things that we do online, but our really like core and important tasks online, um, we're also seeing cyber criminals increasing their amount of ransomware activity. So um, attacks in which they lock down your data and they ask you to pay money in order to get that data back. So you're seeing attacks not only against individuals, but also you're seeing attacks against municipalities, attacks against health infrastructure, um, and even attacks against the companies that are building the vaccines. Um, and, and some of that is stealing and intellectual property theft. Um, and some of that is, is state-based cyber activity where they're actively trying to compete for a vaccine to you know, compete against other states. And then I think on the far end of the spectrum, you're seeing a lot of disinformation operations, some of that and a lot of that actually foreign directed in order to change the narrative around COVID. Yeah, interesting. Herb, do you have any insights on that question? Well, just that that's, we're all working at home now and I, you know, I'm using a home Wi-Fi network and, and, and so on. That's not going to be as secure or robust as the ones that I use when I'm at Stanford. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's an issue, and, and uh, just the fact that I'm now sort of outside the Stanford security perimeter uh, is uh, is a concern, and lots of people are in that kind of situation. So the not only have the threats increased, the protections that we have working at home are in fact somewhat decreased. Yeah. Well, in this case, for any bad actors, Herb is actually using all of the required and, and above and beyond cybersecurity. That is true, but that's a different point. 
characterize for me, would you, the, the nature of the attackers in, cy of cyber, in cyberspace? You mentioned criminals. You mentioned state-sponsored people. Who are they, and what's the relative distribution of these people around the world? It's very, it's, it's very hard to know uh, the, 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 the distribution. There, there are certainly the criminals. Um, there are certain activists uh, who uh, want to use the internet for their own purposes, uh, for example, for organizing and so on. Um, uh, and then there's the state-sponsored people. Uh, the Russians, for example, are, are certainly perfectly willing to uh, organize uh, a pro-Trump and, pro and an anti-Trump rally for the same time at, uh, same time, same place, and, and, and uh, hope that the people fight with each other. Uh, so, you know, the, the, is there any geopolitical goal to that? Uh, well, to create chaos in the United States. That, that, could, be, that could be a goal in itself. Mm -hmm. um, there are people who, who are activists who you would consider, some people would consider troublemakers, and other people would say, no, no, right, right on. They should, be, they should be going at it. So often it's very hard to categorize the, 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 the full range of actors. Yeah, Jackie? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that Herb points out is really important, which is that even state actors are, are varied in their, their methods and their motivations. So with the Chinese, you see um, a country where they've consolidated and control a lot of their cyber operations. So it's very centralized. They focus on intellectual property theft. They focus on, um, on getting data, but they don't do a lot of significant cyber attacks against like critical infrastructure in other countries. And in the past, their information operations have been focused at domestic um, constituents or domestic issues like Taiwan. Um, and they're less uh, active, for instance, against combating, combating the United States. Russia is very different than that. Russia is, we're going to let um, a, a thousand seeds flower. And they have organizations like the IRA, um, which are actively fostering disinformation campaigns against the United States, as well as kind of more centralized disinformation operations coming from the Russian GRU. And then we know that the Russians are actually some of the biggest experimenters when it comes to um, cyber attacks against critical infrastructure, and then cyber attacks against both infrastructure and weapons in conjunction with conventional campaigns, for instance, in Ukraine. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Cynthia asked the following question. How can democratic governments and social media companies protect themselves against authoritarian government, anti-American and biased propaganda attacks? Well, we're watching a natural experiment play out right now between Facebook and Twitter. And <laughs> um, I think that the vast majority of experts um, within the, the US who've been looking at the disinformation campaigns over the past few years would advocate that the private sector, i.e. the social media platforms, need to take um, more of a role in policing their own disinformation campaigns. Um, in the last two weeks, Twitter has has made some pretty significant movements towards policing verifiable information on their platform. Facebook has gone exactly the other way. Um, and the EO that came out and um, that Trump put out um, tries to incentivize more of what kind of Facebook is doing, which takes its hands off. Um, and it seems to want to try and punish uh, Twitter. Yeah. There's also, the, there, there's also the fact that government regulation to, to quote, force this, the social media companies to, to, to do things uh, runs up against things like the First Amendment. 
which uh, is, is a uh, very interesting uh, constraint on what government is allowed to do. Um, and you can be sure that the Russians don't have, don't face similar constraints in trying to think about how they can launch information. Yeah. Um, if you're just joining us, I'm Tom Gilligan, and this is the Hoover Institution's virtual policy briefing with Jacqueline Snyder and Herb Lynn. Herb, talk a little bit, you know, we do have regulation and law that tries to address to some extent misinformation and disinformation campaigns. Talk, uh, explain to the audience a little bit about Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. When was it passed? What was it designed to do? And why is it failing or succeeding in controlling misinformation campaigns? Section 230 was passed in uh, 1996, uh, uh, and it, uh, it, it applies to any, in, any, basically anybody who provides services over the, over the internet. And so the people of direct concern, or directly concerned about it, are uh, players like uh, the, the Google and Facebook and Twitter and, and, and the like. Um, the uh, the original intent uh, was to, to to they had two purposes. Uh, one was to um, give the uh, platform companies essentially what you might call common carrier status, the way the the uh, the, the phone company has it. So if I, I can say anything to you uh, over the phone um, uh, that's libelous, you know, scurrilous, harmful to your reputation and so on. And you can't hold the phone company responsible. You can hold me responsible for it, but you can't hold the, the, uh, mm -hmm. the phone company responsible for it. Uh, and, and it was thought that that provision was, uh, would help protect, uh, growing internet company, you know, it, nurturing internet companies that were small at the time to, to try to, uh, be freer in what they could offer, the service they could offer. The second uh, thing that it was supposed to do was to provide an incentive for companies to be willing to uh, uh, exert some control over what they carried. Uh, because uh, if, you, if you try to exert some sort of control over it and you didn't do enough and somebody would come along and complain and say, you didn't do enough, I'm going to sue you. Um, and it was supposed to preempt that kind of, of, of lawsuit. The result has been that basically companies say, no, no, Section 230 means I don't have to do any of this stuff. And, and, and Mark, Mark, Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg's position uh, on what Facebook uh, shouldn't be doing and, and, and so on is, is squarely in 230, uh, the realm of 230. If, he didn't, if Section 230 didn't exist, he would have to do something about that. Yeah, but yet Facebook set up about a month ago a panel to uh, oversee their sensorial decisions to take stuff off their platform. Uh, so, and, and as I understand, Jack, he's having some internal difficulties at the company with an extreme view of the 230 section interpretation. What do you hear about Facebook's corporate culture and where do you think they're going to go? Uh, well, you know, it's funny because on Twitter, there's actually been a bit of a discussion from like former and current Facebook employees about, you know, being upset with with Facebook's stance on this. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how powerful that that group of people are within Facebook. Um, honestly, if 
if you're Zuckerberg and you know you're faced with um, the potential of an administration or a presidency that might adopt very strict regulations against you if you're policing, there's a lot of disincentives there. Um, so I think you're you're faced between how strong is this dissent within your corporation, and then you know there doesn't seem to be a lot of push from the the federal government. In fact, the push seems to be the other way, and um, to actually enforce some of these policing mechanisms for disinformation campaigns on Facebook. Uh, we got some really interesting questions here. Sidario wants you to comment on the present day cyber activity has a steering mechanism for legal public protest. So we're talking about civil unrest. I, I read the other day that there was a denial of service attack successfully perpetrated against the Minneapolis police and civil government during this time. What, what What's that about? And I guess the natural question is, uh, how can that happen? Why isn't there a technical solution to protect um, public servants from these kind of malicious attacks to to advance the public good? Well, there are there are solutions uh, to it. The problem is they all cost money, and, and uh, every every dollar that you spend on security is a dollar you can't spend on something else. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, there's no such thing as a municipal government agency that has enough money. Uh, and so they have to make choices and they do the best they can under the circumstances. Uh, and it's very difficult to, to maintain uh, uh, security against um, even a determined teenager, let alone a determined um, uh, nation state. Yeah. Definitely. And I think we're seeing, you know, not only are we seeing an increase in these kind of opportunistic cyber attacks, um, potentially supporting some of the protests, but some of them, you know, not. We're also seeing an increase in, in disinformation operations, um, on, probably on both sides. And to be fair, we don't, we don't know how much of this is foreign, but we do know that in 2016, one of the, the very, one of the Russian tactics was to pit Blue Lives Matter versus Black Lives Matter. And so some of their most successful disinformation campaigns were to convince the Black Lives Matter um, constituency not to vote in the election, and then to galvanize the Blue Lives Matter to vote for Trump. And so while we don't yet know, we haven't you know, done all the forensics to know how much kind of Russian involvement has been in stoking sentiments on both sides of the current civil unrest, we can imagine that this would be a place where the Russians would really want to insert themselves and that they would want to, um, to try and, and derail peaceful protests um, and at the same time to um, in increase the antipathies that might already exist within the United States. Interesting. Um, let's, let's change gears for just a second here. Uh, Jackie, you were an Air Force officer and an expert on cyber warfare. Uh, tell us how uh, God forbid if we were to have another war or a hot exchange of political disagreement, how has the cyber environment changed and what role would it play in warfare? Yeah, this is one of these puzzles that, it, that, I, that I just love looking at. Um, I think you, you can't ask the, answer this question about cyber without thinking about the way digital weaponry has changed the battlefield and how we've gone all in on artificial intelligence and machine learning and even kind of our infantry soldiers are equipped with information sharing devices with GPS. So the, the digital um, ethernet is such a, at the very core of how we do war. And with that, it's creating new vulnerabilities. I think, um, 
when this first, when cyber attacks first came on the stage, people really thought that cyber attacks would create equivalent kind of effects as their kinetic counterparts. So there was a real substitution that was happening cognitively between, for example, a bomb like a JDAM and a cyber attack. And I think there was a lot of experimentation that occurred there and people got really frustrated because cyber attacks are not like bombs. Um, you're not sure if you're going to have access. You're not sure what the effects are going to be. Um, and if, if you want to create a bomb effect, shoot, drop the bomb. Like, you know how it's going to work. And um, so we've seen a move away from those kinds of focus on cyber attacks that look like bombs and thinking more about how cyber attacks actually influence our trust in our digital weaponry. So as we move to more centralized um, computing and we have clouds and we have AI algorithms, then the real kind of effect of cyber attacks becomes not attacking a platform. But in instead, attacking how we trust our own networks. And so you create like a systemic effect. Right now, the way states are dealing with it, they're actually creating weapons and campaigns that incentivize preemptive attack. Um, that's something that I, I hope that we can change in the future. So uh, let me make sure I understand what you're saying. So this, the nature of a cyber attack would be to undermine the functionality of basic infrastructure or the yeah. thing. Okay. Or to undermine your trust of it. So like when I was a baby lieutenant, back at the beginning of the internet and I was stationed in Korea, we had a common operating picture. It had five inputs. I could tell you which one of those inputs was had errors at what time. Now I bet that common operating picture has 200 plus sensors and you don't know what algorithm is occurring in the back of that common operating picture to determine what is good information, what is bad information. So before I could say, ah, there's an error. I know what the sensor is that's causing that error. Now if there's an error, you have to you can't trust the entire system. And that's where I see being the biggest effect of cyber vulnerabilities on potential cyber attacks. Yeah. Well, the, the significant, I want to point out, the significance of that is that you don't have to create very large effects. All you have to do is create small effects, which are much easier to do, and you can undermine trust in the entire system. So that's, that's just as good as creating the large effect. Interesting. Yes. Interesting. Um, your, your, your answer to my question about the local municipality's inability to protect themselves from these things kind of brought up this general, this general question from Stephen. Stephen asks, why is there not a national strategy to protect cyber, the cyber environment in the United States? To your earlier point, why doesn't the federal government pay for state and local cybersecurity? I mean, isn't oh. the classic public good that the federal government should be working on? Because we're all broke. Uh, not really. <laughs> well, some of us are. Yeah. Uh, okay, there is a national cyber strategy. There is also a Department of Defense cyber strategy. There is a Department of Homeland Security cyber strategy. There is a cyber command vision, which is a strategy. We do not suffer from having strategies. What we suffer from is all those strategies speaking to each other in a coherent way. Mm -hmm. um, and that's actually one of the recommendations we made in the Cyberspace Solarium Commission is that these strategies need to talk to each other and they need to work from each other. Um, now, one of the big questions in those strategies is public-private partnership and how we can better defend the extraordinary vulnerabilities within U.S. critical infrastructure. And I think what the federal government has decided is that we are never going, we as the federal government, would never be the, the, the experts in cyber talent or even cyber capabilities. It's going to be, a lot of times, it's going to be the private sector. So instead of defending everyone, instead to invest in information sharing, to invest in resiliency, 
Um, and then on the Department of Defense side to create teams and invest in them authorities and capabilities to conduct cyber operations, counter cyber operations to degrade state actors like Russia and China from being able to conduct attacks against critical infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And those types of, um, they're called defense and forward activities would occur every day in kind of a status quo competitive world. Yeah. There's one, one, there's, I'm going to underscore one, one, one other point here is that we'll never get to a point where you can solve this quote, solve the cybersecurity problem once and for all. It's an ongoing battle forever and it's going to have to be funded forever and, and, and so on. And if you ever let up on it, it's going to break out again. So. Yeah. Well, Herb, you do we need a, do we need a blue ribbon uh, panel? to kind of aggregate all these efforts to come up with a national security strategy, national oh, cybersecurity strategy? Jackie was an advisor to it for, on the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, uh, which just issued a very good uh, report in March. You're going to say like, long. <laughs> it's long. Um, it had, it, 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 and it's some, if, if, there's just, if there's one report to read about cybersecurity, that's it. Because it really it distills the wisdom of, of lots of reports, thirty years, you know, from the, for the last thirty years, and, and and rolls them up and packages them in an actionable form. Uh, so that that's really the you know the the, the two things that it did. Uh, yeah. And, and so there is a strategy out there, and we just got to get you know the, the the government to to do some things about it. Yeah, I'm I'm reading my iPad. I have a lot of a lot of interesting questions here. And they boil down to two things, and I'm sorry for the people I can't mention here. They boil down to two things. One is, shouldn't we be on the offensive in going after the state actors who are using the cyberspace to attack us? And the other question is just, uh, is the level of activity by state-level actors in cyberspace increasing dramatically? So I would say, number one, yes, we are seeing an increase in just the overall cyber attack. We're also seeing the increase in the economic effect of these cyber attacks. Not pet yet, for example, was extremely expensive. This is a, a cyber attack a few years back. Um, what we're not seeing is cyber operations significantly changing the use of violence. So that's a good thing, right? So while they are increasing in kind of how prolific they are and how much economic effect they are creating, we're not seeing it change a lot of like balance of politics when it comes to inciting conflict and war. The question about whether we should be more offensive. So I actually think we should. And we, there's been a big transition from the Obama administration to the Trump administration's strategies. Obama administration was really focused on deterrence and it asked the DOD to be prepared to respond if a cyber attack occurs. There's been a big transition under Trump to what this defend forward strategy, which is the idea that you're conducting cyber operations all the time and you're not waiting just to respond. Now where the problem was in the strategy, like any good DOD strategy, they, they put a concept out there, didn't define it, didn't really say what fell underneath defend forward. And so there's a lot of confusion about kind of how big cyber operations, what type of cyber operations fall under defend forward. So I actually have a piece coming out in the Washington Quarterly any day now that says, yes, we should continue to be um, offensive in countering cyber operations, degrading the adversary cyber capabilities, but that the United States should have a declaratory policy of restraint when it comes to cyber attacks against others as critical infrastructure, and that we should therefore have a no first use policy against the cyber attacks against our adversaries critical infrastructure. Interesting. Herb, any additions to that? No. Nope. No. No. Um, 
Herb, several people asked you to repeat the name of the report that Jackie wrote. They'd like to get it. Could you give a handy tip on, on how to get it? Cyber Solarium Report. And that will take you, do a Google search on that, and that will take you direct, the first or second hit will take you directly to the page where you can download the report. Got it. And I will only take credit for the good stuff, and I will not take credit for any of the bad stuff. <laughs> and I'll let you guys figure out what, which is which. Yeah. Herb, you know, I think everybody knows the Hoover Institution is at Stanford, and Stanford's in the middle of Silicon Valley. And I know that your group, we have several people at Hoover and at Stanford who work on cybersecurity issues. What, what's the nature of the discussions you've been having over the past two or three years? And what's going to happen with respect to policy? And are you optimistic that we can make some constructive changes in the way in which the cyber and virtual world affects human well-being? Well, so I think that the fact that we're in Silicon Valley, that we're part of Stanford, Hoover's part of Stanford, uh, and, and, and we're in Silicon Valley, uh, matters a lot because we get to interface with the tech people. Uh, we also the the Hoover uh, interface gives us a lot of access to the uh, to the policy people, and I think that one of the things that that I think we have a unique strength in doing is in doing significant, real, rigorous academic research on problems that are of interest to policymakers. Jackie and I spent a lot of our time talking to policymakers, trying to figure out what's on their minds or, and trying to figure out what should be on their minds. Uh, and then we go off and try to do research that's directly relevant uh, to that. I, so I, I think that that, that has uh, significant impact. Um, I, am I optimistic? Well, it depends on the day. Um, sometimes, sometimes our great advice gets ignored. On the other hand, sometimes our great advice gets taken up and it sparks interesting conversations. Somebody says, hey, you know, we hadn't thought about that before. Oh, that's an interesting result. We didn't, we, that, we thought it would go the other way and, and so on. So those are very useful conversations. Um, and, and, and so I think that, you know, I, I'm optimistic in the sense that uh, we do, it, the world is better off uh, that we are here doing our work than if we weren't. Yeah. Jackie, how about you? Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that makes Hoover different than other institutions or that makes us unique and especially advantaged is that we are at Stanford. And so there's an extraordinary amount of novel research that's occurring here. So it's not just punditry. You're actually able to create new data. And I really want to highlight um, some of the work that's been done by the Internet Observatory in terms of disinformation operations. And if, if anyone hasn't checked out their website, you really should. They've been on top of everything that's happening right now. We also have an extraordinary cyber policy center. Center. But then we have um, this really unique ability to interface with senior defense um, practitioners here as well. And so, you know, my research is looking at kind of the high end of, of cyber and stability, looking using war games to understand cyber operations and nuclear stability. So at Stanford, you have the ability to span all of those with extraordinary expert, extraordinary expertise um, across those very diverse topics and, and present novel and interesting um, data. For, for policymakers to make decisions from. Yeah, got it. Uh, here's a question from Travis uh, on the topic of domestic or US private cyber protection. How do you incentivize and hold accountable private companies and local and state governments for ensuring proper investment in their own IT and electronic security instead of having the answer being the federal government fund and execute infrastructure defense? Herb, do, do private companies have the proper financial incentives to invest uh, against cybersecurity attacks? Well, so we, we have, there's an interesting question here. Uh, a rational cybersecurity company will invest only insofar as its uh, own needs are concerned. 
Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it won't go any it won't go any farther than that. But of course, there are issues in cybersecurity that go beyond the individual needs of the company that that are systemic that that affect the entire nation. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it is not rational for the company to go to invest beyond its original needs. So how, who's going to pay for that extra? And I think no, nobody has figured out a good answer to that yeah. Um, yet. So uh, that's, a, that's one of the major public policy challenges we face. Yeah, so Jackie, so private companies, when they have a data breach, a lot of times there's litigation or there's a settlement made with people whose data was got out there. I think what I hear Herb saying is that settlement is, is, in, is insufficient to cause private companies to make their proper investments in cybersecurity. Is that your view as well? So I think that a lot of the big companies are incentivized now to invest in cybersecurity. And, right. um, you know, you look at the financial sector, for example, I mean, there is a sector where cyber threats and their like uh, ability to degrade trust uh, become existential. Right. And so Chase, Chase's budget for cybersecurity is almost more than the U.S. government, the DOD's budget for cybersecurity, just to show you kind of like how, how invested some of these sectors are. But there are other sectors like, for example, um, energy and electricity. Energy and electricity did not see themselves as IT sectors. They saw themselves as sectors that provided a public good and a very kind of concrete public good. It's been a lot harder for them to update and to budget and they don't have the revenue, right, that the finance sector has. Um, so it's been a lot harder for them to update. But where you really see the, um, the mechanisms get messed up is for small companies and mom and pop companies because the cybersecurity cost is so much higher in proportion to how much revenue they're bringing in. You know, they're not a huge company that's just kind of absorbing these costs. And so for a long time, you'd see that the kind of the vectors that are most likely to be targeted are these kind of smaller companies and they get hit with these ransomware attacks where it would just be like small amounts of money, but the cyber actor would be attacking many of them. Now we're seeing these companies kind of um, invest in cyber insurance, invest in cloud computing and invest in kind of a standardized cybersecurity kind of suite. Um, and so you're seeing less of, um, you're seeing the overall cybersecurity increase for these companies, but in some ways you've centralized the vulnerabilities within a few major cloud providers, a few major cybersecurity providers. Um, and, and so you have new, new problems for the federal government. Got it. I want to close with a couple big questions, big thought questions. Uh, Lyric asks a very interesting question, and I'll let you both answer it. Um, says, what is your greatest fear? We have survived some of the worst consequences of COVID due to access to the internet. What would be a generalized nationwide attack look like? What should we be looking for? Are, 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 are our defenses robust enough to defend against it? My greatest fear is what's happening now. My greatest fear is that our inability to, to parse truth um, and the, the, the domestic and foreign disinformation, um, and at the same time, our isolation from one another and the way that isolation causes us to kind of slowly erode community and humanity. Um, I, I'm worried that this will schism our society and that we'll kind of lose what is, is best about America um, and about each other um, because we've isolated ourselves and at the same time are even more vulnerable to information campaigns. So the defense of that is not technological, it's having a stronger civic community or civic yes. uh, core. Okay. Which is the opposite of what you can do in a pandemic. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Yeah, you can't get together and have a drink with somebody you didn't don't normally talk to, right? Yeah. Herb, yeah. how about you, biggest fear? Uh, I, 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 I couldn't have said it better. Uh, I, I, th I, I think that's right. We're, we're, we're coming to a, a point where rage and fantasy become the pillars of human discourse. That's just all about the psychology that's necessary to make misinformation campaigns work, I think is what's going on. Yeah. Herb is frozen up for me. Has he frozen up for you too, Jackie? Yes, I think that had to happen in a cyber talk. It was required. Yeah, yeah. So you can take that off your bingo cards, folks. Herb, you froze up. You were simulating a cyber attack for us. Right. For no, I, 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 I was saying that the, 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 uh, the replacement of you know, rage and, and, and fantasy uh, become the, uh, the pillars of discourse rather than reason and reality. And, 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 and that's a terrible world to, 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 to be in. Uh, yeah. and, and we are uniquely handicapped because... We lost it was going to be brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me let me kick it over to you, Jackie. He'll come back here shortly. Uh, there was a, a lot of questions around uh, from people that said, "How should the individual protect themselves? Is there anything that an individual can do to insulate themselves from cyber attacks or the threats that cyber poses?" Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing that you can do is really the most boring, you know, you change your passwords, <laughs> basic cyber hygiene, right? Your password is not password. Um, you, you update. I mean, I'm, I'm at fault of not always doing my updates on time. Um, those are the, the easiest and simplest things to do. But beyond that is to think about how you kind of build your own resiliency. Um, in terms of information operations, that's am I checking things, especially am I checking things that seem like they're right? Um, I always double check something that, that, that hits my priors. Oh, I, I thought this initially and now this report says it. Uh, that you need a double check. So that's a kind of a resiliency factor. Um, Twitter is now putting a verification check on some um, material that they are deeming to be potentially um, not true. So that's another way that you can use kind of technology to, to help you with disinformation operations. Um, and then, you know, I'm not saying, you know, buy bars of gold and stick bars of gold underneath your um, your bed. But, but I do think that, um, we need to think about, in general, especially if you're leading um, organizations, manual uh, redundancies or resiliencies to digital processes. Yeah, got it. Let me ask you another question. Um, you know, our inability to engage in civil discourse with people, keep staying at home, is threatening some basic pillars for our democracy, such as voting. Uh, you know, we had a discussion previously in this series about voting by mail. You see the online or cyber opportunities for voting to be real and existent? Or are they too fraught with uh, threats to be taken seriously? I have not met a cyber expert that thinks that online voting is a good idea. Um, uh, there's just a lot of potential for, um, there's a lot of potential for um, manipulation of data on, on, on the virtual interfaces, and there's very few kind of manual or paper backups. So you're really going all in on, on digital, and no cyber expert would tell you that anything can, can definitively be locked down. Um, so I think that most cyber experts would recommend a slower uh, process like mail-in uh, ballots. Which I'm sure the mail-in ballots, people will tell you what the problems are there. Yeah, got it. I want to announce to everybody that we're going to put a link to the U.S. Cyberspace Solarium Report in the chat feature on the, uh, on the Zoom. So everybody just get in the chat feature and you'll be able to see that link and get the report. Kind of last question, Jackie. Um, 
you know, if you were the dictator for the day and could do anything to make the cyber world more productive for humanity, what would it be? I think for me, um, I was really optimistic about the ability for us to use defend forward or these counter cyber operations so at least decrease the effectiveness of of foreign uh interference whether it's information operations or cyber attacks i think that's one thing the other thing is that i think the united states needs to have a declaratory policy of restraint at the strategic level um, and that we need to find a way to create norms and the, the best way to create norms is actually by by doing something that's not always advantageous for you um, so we need to create norms of not attacking each other's critical infrastructure. And then, um, unfortunately, I think the solution for the um, resiliency towards information is a long-term solution um, mm -hmm. about investing in education uh, and investing in our, in our communities. Right, right. Maybe if we knew more about uh, the political world, we wouldn't have to rely on bad information provided by foreign governments <laughs> to make our voting decisions, right? Right. Got it. Jackie and Herb, thanks so much for being here. It was a great discussion. We're sorry. Is that Herb back on? Uh, he's still here. Herb, you're here. Herb. <laughs> I'm now on my cell phone. Yeah, there we go. And this is what resiliency means in the cyber world, right? That's right. Do you have a backup connection? And I will debug my, my, my what happened later. But All right. Well, good. Herb, we're finishing up. I just was just thanking you and Jackie for being here. What a wonderful discussion it was. Okay, sorry, sorry about the glitch. No worries, no worries. That's the modern world. Yeah. Our next Hoover virtual policy briefing will be Thursday, June 4th at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern time with Stephen Haber and Alexander Galatovic, who will be talking about reopening the American economy, lessons from around the world. Stephen is the Peter and Helen Bing Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the AA and Gene Welch Milligan Professor in the School of Humanities and Sciences at Stanford. Alexander is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution and a senior fellow at the Universidad Aldapo Ibanez in Santiago. He is currently an advisor to the Chilean Ministry of Finance on COVID-19 policy and the implementation of massive testing to keep the economy open. You can join Thursday's briefing at the same link that you signed on today. And you'll find the Hoover Institution online at hoover.org and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Again, I want to thank you for joining us today. Have a, have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.